Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole, and I'm Regina Berry, aka Tesseract. That's right. And I'm going. And today we're going to be doing the first of uh, several bonus episodes um, that I promised people who backed um, uh, most likely at the fifty dollar level. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to um, say from myself, uh, thank you to everyone who contributed to that movie. Um, one of the actresses in it, uh, Jess Conger, is my best friend and has been so uh, for over half my life. And, um, you know, it really means a lot to me that people would um, support uh, her and support Andrew and their project and um, just make sure that uh, small local films are getting made and that uh, cast and crew are getting fairly compensated for their work. So, uh, again, thank you so much. It's it's really, yeah. Absolutely. This episode was sponsored by Sean Pontau, or Ponto. I'm going to say Pontau, because his uh, Pontau, yeah, I'm going to say Pontau. And uh, so when Sean backed at the $50 level, uh, he sent us this email. I contributed to the most likely Kickstarter per Patty's request in the last two eps, but I'm going to make it easy for him. I'm Since I'm not sure if you guys will ever do a Martin Scorsese episode, I would like Patrick to talk about two very divisive films of his, both of which are excellent psychological thrillers, in my humble opinion, Cape Fear and Shutter Island. If he's feeling ambitious, then also try and sneak in a viewing of Bringing Out the Dead, since that's another underrated gem of his, featuring the single best performance of Cage's career and the final best shot of any Scorsese film. There's been enough talk about Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, but Marty also excels at the horror genre, albeit not in the conventional horror movie sense. Have fun, and cannot wait to hear Patrick talk Scorsese. Most likely sounds great, too. Later, Gators, Sean Ponto. Um, So, yeah, we're going to do that. We did not see Bringing Out the Dead. Which is a huge bummer because I love that movie. I oh, really? I haven't seen it in like I didn't a even. Long time. I wasn't even thinking about watching Bring Out the Dead because to me, Cape Fear and Shutter Island, they felt like compatriots. They felt like sure. two movies that match well together. And then Bring Out the Dead just felt like, oh, that's also an underrated Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can see where Cape Fear and Shutter Island are uh, more similar than, uh, than Bringing Out the Dead. And also... Uh, we're busy people and just didn't have time to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It can be hard to sync our schedules. Yeah. Um, but um, do you want to talk about Bring... Because I haven't seen Bringing Out the Dead since I was in high school. Yeah, I haven't either. But I just remember... Um... <sighs> so when I say that I love a movie and it's a movie that I haven't seen since I was like a teenager or even in my early 20s. Yeah. I always, ha- I always feel like I have to give it a rider because he- what like a good artistic interesting movie is when it's something that like just comes out and it's kind of like I, I mean it's it's Scorsese you know he's well known he's not exactly obscure but you know there's still that like art house kind of vibe to it mm-hmm. um so I, I kind of feel you know when you're watching it and at, in, at that age and like you're just getting into film it's like oh man this is so great but I mean for all I know you know I could go back and watch it and just be like oh this is just a rip off of that or it's just a watered down version of the other thing. So I don't know if my 30 year old self with all the movies that I've seen would have the same reaction to bringing out the dead. Yeah. But I mean, I thought of nothing else. It was a really interesting concept, you know, um, because when you think about like how many movies are there about EMTs, but that's such like a it, dramatic sort yeah, of life, like yeah, intense, yeah, it's emotional like, or, or the opposite. Like you have to just cut off all your emotion. Yeah. Yeah. But either way, it's like, it's like you're, you're wrestling with, you know, such like a primal thing, like, you mm-hmm. know, you know, helping people who are, who are fighting for their lives quite yeah. literally. And like, you're, you're roped into that. 
And it's, you know, in such like a different way than like a doctor or a nurse where it's like you're trying to triage someone and bring them into a hospital. So it's like there's like all these different, Mm -hmm. you know, elements that you're out there on the streets, which is, you know, that's probably the appeal of it to Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, You can't picture Martin Scorsese doing a hospital drama, but like the idea of just being out there on the streets in in, in the thick of all the violence. Yeah. And it's like um, and, you know, if something if something huge happens then it's like the emts are the, are the ones who there um who are there i actually an acquaintance of mine um was an emt uh in the in the new york city area uh on 9 11 and so she had to respond to that sure, sure. and that's i mean i mean just the impact that that had on her was like I, I mean i mean just just echoed i met her i met her um you know several years after uh, 9-11 happened but it was still like a very like resonant thing for her just because you know so it, it's like when you're signing up for a job like that it's like you don't know you know what you're gonna get I mean I think it's kind of I don't want to say it's the same thing as like being a social worker because usually you know when you're a social worker you're seeing one person at a time right <laughs> so even if you're not rushing out necessarily also right exactly so yeah I, I think um, I, I think that movie would be you know worth a rewatch just you know to see um, um, how um, that world gets explored. I, I think it's funny that you said you you sort of gave that caveat to it's like, well, I saw it when I was in high school, right. and my concept of what an amazing movie was was a lot yeah. more limited. This was before Nick Cage did Wicker Man. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was after Nick Cage did uh, Moon Moonstruck. Well, yeah, that's why I thought it was going to be amazing. Right, cause... exactly. <laughs> um. But um, but I have to say, like I, I, I thought back on it, and I think the first Martin Scorsese movie I ever saw was when I was like in eighth grade. It was Cape Fear. Like, oh really? I rented Cape Fear from my library just because I thought it looked like a cool, scary kind of exciting action movie with Robert De Niro in it, mm-hmm. and I vaguely knew who Robert De Niro was. Right. Um, and I so like Cape Fear is a movie I saw really early before I was like really truly into film, and I always remembered it like very fondly i'd loved cape fear mm-hmm. when i was that age and i thought it was like a really cool interesting dark uh sort of over the top stylish kind of a thriller mm-hmm. and that did not hold up <laughs> yeah it's actually interesting because um with cape fear and um shutter island we sort of had flipped experiences where i had seen shutter island when it came out in theaters in like what 2009 2010 2010 you know so it's been like five years since i've seen that movie Mm -hmm. whereas cape fear i hadn't seen either of them until this weekend yeah oh yeah that's true we should say we watched the original yeah as well um what did you think of the original um you know i have to say um I didn't like either movie as much as like other comparable films. Like I didn't like Cape Fear as much as Night of the Hunter. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, I still thought Cape Fear. I mean, both. Of, I like the original a lot better than the Scorsese one. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, maybe just because it's a bit simpler, it's a bit cleaner. Yeah, and. There's something um, really different um, going into a Scorsese film where, you know, he has this reputation from, like, Taxi Driver and Goodfellas. So you kind of expect, like, a certain amount of violence and chaos and nihilism when you're going into a Scorsese picture. Or even when you're just going into 
a, a picture because I'm, right. I'm a 1950s producer. <laughs> right. Oh. Yeah. Well, that is that's like to me. I associate Martin Scorsese with calling films pictures. Yeah. I I, I love that he's like, oh, that was a hell of a hell of a picture. <laughs> that's, all, that's always whenever you see like an interview with him or like he's talking about noir films he loves. He's like, you know, you, you, you see something like out of the past. It's a, it's a hell of a picture. <laughs> okay, so maybe that was a pro- that was an yeah, appropriate yeah. Um, phrase turn of phrase. Um, yeah, but you know. When when you go into a Scorsese film, or or even when you go into a film where you know you know that Robert De Niro is playing the antagonist, like you you expect this level of intensity. So I mm-hmm. kind of felt like going into Cave Fear, I, I or the going into the Scorsese remake, I felt more like emotionally and spiritually prepared for it as uh, opposed to the original one. Yeah, Cape, the original Cave Fear is so like. It catches you off guard. It's like Night of the Hunter in that yeah. it's really, really dark and it implies such terrible violence. Oh, yeah. Oh, my and God. And you don't expect it because of the age it came out. You expect those things. I mean, it is implied. They don't. The actual on screen violence is not so terrible. Right. That, that, that's true. I mean, I mean, it is less gory. But it I guess. still is. I mean, it was. So it was, so the original Cape Fear it came out I think it was like 1962. Um, I want I'm gonna look this up real quick. 1962, and um, there was actually an interesting thing going on with the code at the time, mm-hmm. where um, the MPAA wasn't uh, quite around yet. Um, but what happened in the 60s was that um, there are all these films, like particularly by Otto. I, I know all this because I was I've been reading a Celluloid uh, Closet, which is a really right. interesting book about the history of gay characters in a film Mm -hmm. in Hollywood it should to be more specific and it talks about like the children's hour which is this novel about these two women who have a relationship and a child uh you know sees them and it causes a scandal yeah they're they're teachers at her school yeah Yeah. so so like it was it was a story that was adapted in the 30s and it and they had to they couldn't have any homosexual uh you know they couldn't have any gay content in it at all so they changed it to like the 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 child sees them having one having an affair with the other's husband um and then in the 60s they were going to remake it again uh with uh audrey hepburn and shirley MacLaine. yeah and they were like you know what we're just gonna we're just gonna do it we're just gonna have the gay themes in Mm -hmm. it and if it doesn't get approved then we're just going to release it without the approval. Right. Because at this point, Otto Preminger had been systematically releasing movies that were too dark and too edgy, and he would just release them without code approval. So, like, um, so like a lot of the times the code, because Otto Preminger's movies were so big, the code had to change itself just to keep up with, so it didn't seem hopelessly outdated, so they could, like, maintain some semblance of authority. Right, right. So, like, Otto Preminger, um, with advising consent mm-hmm. and uh, the children's hour... Uh, both came out around the same time and Anatomy of a Murder came out around the same time right. as well. And it was changing the way that you could talk about things in films. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cape Fear came out sort of in the wake of all that. And I think it's a movie that you watch it, you know, you, you get put in a certain mindset because you like, okay, it's the late 50s, early 60s sort of looking movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see this level of violence. I'm going to see this kind of content. It's going to be this amount of shocking. Mm-hmm. And then when you see it, it's, oh, my God, this is way, yeah. way worse. The, there's the description Robert Mitchum has of what he did to his wife. Oh, yeah. Once yeah. he got out of prison. Right. Where he never, you know, he, he never says, like, oh, I raped her. But 
I mean, even even the what th that even makes it worse. It's kind of like that that Patton Oswalt bit where he's like, you know, if I get up here and say like I'm gonna stick my you know hoo ha in your, <laughs> you know, how it's so much worse than actually yeah. swearing. Like that's kind of what it felt like, where he's just using these very like euphemistic, congenial terms and talking in this like good old boy kind of way about how he you know sexually assaulted well, yeah, his well, ex wife. It's, it's, it's and... a comedy. Yeah, it's a combination of that good old boy talk and also the just. In not giving any details, the audience is left to suspect the worst. Right. And it actually, the audience has to actively work in their mind to create an image. And it's a repulsive image of uh -huh. this woman being beaten and drugged and raped for three days. Right. Which is, you never expect to hear described to you in a movie from 1962. Right. <laughs> and Robert, and there's just this air of sexual violence over the whole thing because... I mean, in the remake of Cape Fear, he's like Hannibal Lecter. It came out, I was, I was, when I first uh, was watching the remake, I was like, oh my God, this is just, they decided, oh, Sans Salams is big, so we're going to put it in Cape Fear. But they actually mm -hmm. came out the same year, so I don't think that was the thinking. Mm -hmm. it, it was just sort of uh, lateral thinking, I suppose. But like, mm -hmm. he's kind of like Hannibal Lecter. Like, he's so super clever, and he has these perfectly constructed little plans. Oh yeah, and he's like quoting all of these different, he, Yeah, you know, like he's like this super smart. references. Whereas like, and... Robert Mitchum... The only thing on his mind, it's like, when you least expect it, I'm going to rape your wife and daughter and yeah. I'm going to murder all three of you. Yeah. Like, it's really, really upsetting, the the simplicity of it. Like the, yeah, it's brutal. That's what I kept thinking when I was, yeah. I mean, when I was watching both of them, but really more so the original. I just kept thinking to myself, like, oh my God, how brutal is this movie? Mm -hmm. Like, the, the scene where, you know, she he's cornering the woman on the houseboat and it's not cutting mm -hmm. away. You're like... You would think, like, okay, this is when you start cutting away to Gregory Peck to build tension. Right. Like, he's going to come and save at the last moment. But right. it's not cutting away no. at all. <laughs> and at any moment, this band's going to start raving this one. And he, like, he cracks the egg. Oh, my God. There's, like, this moment where he whips, like, she reaches for a kitchen knife. And he whips his hand, like, really quick and stops her from grabbing it. And then he grabs an egg from a bowl that's on the, 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 the countertop. Uh -huh. And then... In like one insanely fast move, it's so startling. He cracks the egg in midair, and egg splatters all over her chest, and yeah. then he just starts rubbing it on her chest yeah. as he's talking oh to her God. about like, well, what's going to happen is I'm going if you don't do this, that you know, if you don't say that that it was consensual, then I'm going to do this even worse thing. Like, right, right. It's so upsetting. It's so really powerful. I read this um, Orson Welles quote. Um, Last last week, I was kind of going a little Orson Welles nuts because it was the 100th anniversary of his birth. Um, and I read this great quote by him where he said that there's, um, I'm paraphrasing here, that there's no art without limitations. Uh -huh. And that I think that scene really speaks to that where it's like, like you said, like there was still the code. So he probably couldn't do something like, you know, grab her breasts or something right. like that. But just like that egg yolk, like, oh my God, that's so sick. That mm -hmm. was like, I, I think that's got to be one of the most like upsetting violations it's it's almost almost worse than the thumb sucking with Juliet Lewis yeah, in yeah. the remake i mean i mean really if if she wasn't 15 if she was like 18 or 19 i, I would say that the that the egg thing was like way more upsetting but yeah uh so i am a big fan of the original cave fear i think in general there are things i don't like about the story in general it's mm -hmm. a very like Castle Doctrine, sort of, I mean, yeah. it's pre-Death Wish, but it's that sort of just Death Wish, like, the law is the Death Wish walking, I mean, this sort of, this sort of movie became really popular in the 70s with Death Wish series and Walking Tall and stuff mm -hmm. like that, where it's, 
uh, where it's like, uh, you know, it's like the, the law is full of lib- sissy liberals right. who won't help you. And you need to take the matter into your own hands to protect your property, a.k.a. your wife and daughter. Right. And- yeah, like like that bastard lawyer who defends, you know, prisoners against police brutality. That <laughs> son of a bitch. There's that. There's the idea that it's a movie that is soaked, that is just soaked with the threat of sexual violence mm-hmm. and that especially this is a this is sort of tempered more in the remake but in the original film like there's actually no real female characters yeah they're very they're, they're all very two-dimensional like um th- that's one of the things um that really took me out of the original was how easy it was for Robert Mitchum to like terrorize Gregory Peck's wife. Like he calls her and he's just like, you got a pretty voice. And she's like, no, no, no. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just call him a like, jerk they and hang really, up the phone. They Come really on. emphasize just like, oh, she's so helpless. Yeah. Like, Same thing with the daughter. Yeah. Cause they really need to emphasize just like, it's up to Gregory Peck. Right. And I mean, that is something I think that the, the remake improves on oh, probably yeah, by absolutely. necessity. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. I, th- I think with the remake, um, the family dynamic is a lot more believable. Cause you know, in the original they're like oh we can't tell our daughter what's going on she's too young for it and it's like she's 12 or 13 she can probably like yeah. understand that like you know there's an ex-con who's stalking daddy you know mm-hmm. but but in the in the remake it's like they don't tell her because they're too busy arguing because their family's falling apart yeah, yeah. you know it's... so so yeah so anyway we we talked about the original i think i th- i i think the original just to say i think the original is better than the remake mm-hmm. um i they're Neither one is a is a film that I'm like 100% behind necessarily, but I really think the original is a really, really potent, really scary movie. Mm-hmm. I personally think it's, I don't know if the movie, I don't think the movie's better than Night of the Hunter, but I personally think it's more intense and scary than Night of the Hunter. Uh, if only because Night of the Hunter has that distance to it because it kind of feels like that fairy tale quality and that yeah. highly theatrical lighting and all that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I will agree with you. I, I, I think it is a more intense um, film as far as like a thriller goes. Uh, I would say I prefer Night of Night of the Hunter is just more in my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I really like that you know stylized, detached creepiness. Like mm-hmm. that's just more effective to me. Sure, sure. And yeah. So um, what's interesting about what you said about the remake, as far as like their the the naivete of the of the wife and the daughter, mm-hmm. like that was actually so originally Cape Fear the the film that the the remake the nineteen ninety one film. That was originated as a Steven Spielberg movie. Right. It's, which is number one, weird to think about. You don't know what that would be like. There's nothing in Steven Spielberg's filmography that I can think of. Like, not that he's not, not capable of making really scary, intense movies, Mm -hmm. but not movies that are this depraved. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, this grown up. Yeah, like I mean, you know, they're like they're, like Jaws is is scary. There's moments in Close Encounters of the Third Kind that are really scary. Yeah. Like you know, yeah. he he's able to make really scary scenes, but like that sort of sexual depravity just feels like oh, that is mm-hmm. that is so not Spielberg. And I don't know if he would have changed it significantly if he was going to direct it. Apparently, his original idea, according to the IMDb trivia, was to have Bill Murray right, as the that. as Max Cady, the Robert Mitchum character. Mm-hmm. Well, he was still on as a producer, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was produced by Amblin Entertainment, his production company. Uh-huh. And it's the first R-rated movie that they put out, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, yeah, he was on... But basically, he thought... Like, this movie was basically a present to Martin Scorsese because Martin Scorsese's career was not great 
Um, you know, Goodfellas was a critically acclaimed movie, but like so many other Martin Scorsese movies, it wasn't a huge box office hit. Uh-huh. And Scorsese just had a line of movies that were getting expensive and ambitious, but not commercial. Right. And Spielberg was like, look, Martin, you know, I care about your career and, you know, you we're old friends from way back, but like, I want, I want you to still be able to make movies because I mean, the, it's funny. You think of Martin Scorsese and you think of like this old, like, oh my God, like Martin Scorsese has been making great movies forever. Yeah. Like Mean Streets was amazing. Uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Taxi Driver, like Rush, like Raging Bull, uh, King of Comedy. Like you think yeah. about all these amazing movies, but at the time, not even, not only were none of those movies big box office hits, they weren't even all critically acclaimed. Like movies like After Hours and King of Comedy were, were panned, you know? Really? Yeah. yeah. And... I mean, you look at other sort of those uh, new Hollywood kids, um, like Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. He didn't mash in 1970. He That movie was a big hit. It made $81 million. Um, and he had, he built his entire career on mash. He never had another hit. <laughs> um, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, obviously the Godfather. That was his sort of, it wasn't his debut movie, but it was his first major studio movie. Or I guess Finian's Rainbow was a major studio movie, but it wasn't like well known. But The Godfather was sort of his big introduction to the public, and that made $134 million. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, William Friedkin uh, in, in 1973 made The Exorcist, which was $232 million. You know, mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg has just been making mil- hundreds of million dollars forever. George Lucas, like all of these people have actually had big hits that have given them careers. Mm-hmm. And Martin Scorsese had had just been like fucking fighting it out for the longest time. He didn't have a movie that grossed, uh, that broke $80 million till The Aviator. <laughs> that's just, you know, that's just so surprising to me because I, I, I mean, I mean, obviously we're both looking at, at the same yeah, you know, I'm, website. Yeah, I'm looking so. at the box office mojo. <laughs> um, but it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around that just because he's like, he's such a household name. Like, I bet my mom knows who Martin Scorsese is, yeah. you know? She but, doesn't know who William Freakin is, I can probably. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, Taxi Driver, you think, well, Taxi Driver is a huge cultural yeah. event. Yeah. That made less than $30 million. You know, like, yeah, it wasn't they're... actually, like, there was. They're slow burn movies. <laughs> yeah, they, exactly. He, like, he kind of defined American culture in a lot of, in a lot of important films, mm-hmm. but he didn't actually make the kind of movies that you would say like okay hollywood you can give me a lot of money and you can trust me to give you your money back right um and i mean i think it actually kind of worked in his favor because he didn't like blow up <laughs> like yeah. he had no moment like a uh, peter bogdanovich or william freakin where he just spent a hundred million dollars and lost a shitload of money like a lot, i think a lot of his budgets were pretty relatively low because of that mm-hmm. um and i think it ended up working in his favor that it wasn't until he was just like this master filmmaker that he started getting these giant budgets to do like gangs of New York and the aviator and the departed. Well, I mean, I know at least with his, um, with his more recent films, like, like he has big names who are willing to work for scale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's been working with the greatest actors of his generation forever. Like, you know, Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro were both in, were both in Mean Streets. Alice doesn't live here anymore had Ellen Burstyn, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, obviously Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, King of Comedy are all De Niro. Right. I mean, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, he, he had uh, Willem Dafoe and Harvey Keitel. Not that Willem Dafoe was a big name, but he was a great actor. Right, right. And, um, you know, all of these movies have really great actors in them Mm -hmm. and, 
people know like these are movies where you get noticed because these are movie because he makes character based movies. Right. That's sort of what was interesting about Cape Fear was Cape Fear was the first movie that it was it was just like here's a story and here is the plot and the plot is about tying the noose and slowly tightening it. Mm-hmm. It's not about these vignettes. It's not like Mean Streets where it's just about this energy and these characters and these themes. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 like really tight. Um, and honestly, I don't think he excels at that. <laughs> Like, it, it was his biggest movie. Uh, I mean, his previous biggest movie was Color of Money, which was, again, like, his uh, his first sort of foray into, I'm just going to make a studio-ass studio movie right. with Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that didn't even do very well. Uh-huh. Um, but, so, like, I there is something about Cape Fear that just doesn't work. Um, number one, I think he's sort of out of his element as far as the South like it's yeah. it's a it's an interesting venue for a cape for a for a for a Scorsese movie, but it's not necessarily like it's not saying anything interesting about the South. No, it's just sort of like oh, there's Spanish moss on the trees and old buildings, and it looks kind of creepy. Yeah, and there's a racist dude. Yeah, <laughs> and Joe Don Baker's a racist. <laughs> Which may, maybe that was just like that was just that came with Joe. That was in Joe Don Baker's contract. It's mm-hmm. like I'm a racist. <laughs> I don't know. I'm Let's hope not. I'm besmirching the good name of Joe Don Baker, but <laughs> but like um it's also there so the thing is so anyway, like I was saying, the original script for Cape Fear, the one that Steven Spielberg was like Martin Scors- Martin Scorsese, please, I want you to have a career. Do uh-huh. this. And then Martin Scorsese was like Steven Spielberg, this is garbage. This happy family, white picket fences singing songs together in the car. I can't right. take it. And then basically Spielberg's like, "All right, you can Change what you talk with the screenwriter, work with the screenwriter, change what you want about it. Mm-hmm. And then Scorsese thought, okay, well, what if this is about the dis- this dissolution of the family unit? What mm-hmm. if this is about, um, you know, what if this is about Max Cady sort of bringing all of the things that they're not talking about to light? Mm-hmm. And it's about all of the problems they have. And in, and he's just this, this point of attrition that's just exploding all of these problems. Right. It does. It does. <laughs> take the original story and put it in a lot more of a moral gray area because in the original um max katie is stalking um gregory peck i don't even remember like i found this family so unrelatable in both movies like i don't remember the character names sam, sam Bowden. sam Bowden. thank sam you sam Bowden sounds Counselor. like a detective <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. but he's not he's really boring um yeah. so in the original film um max katie is stalking sam Bowden because um Sam witnessed him beating someone up and was like the key witness in his trial. Yeah. But in the remake, it's in a much more gray area where um, Sam is Max's defense attorney and then with withholds evidence where um, say, you know, uh, Max is on trial for having uh, raped this woman. And um, there's a report that comes back that says that she's promiscuous and, uh, Sam doesn't use that in the case. Yeah. Um, and so that's considered to be, you know, you know, that's why Max Katie's so pissed off at him. And it's, and I found myself like going back and forth. 
I honestly did because, you know, in the beginning, like, I mean, you saw me, I was just getting so pissed off where I was like, well, of course you would withhold that. That doesn't matter. Yeah, and yeah. even Nick Nolte says that. He's like, it doesn't matter. You still did it. And it's like, yeah, Nick Nolte. But then, like, there's that climactic scene at the end where Max Cady's like, well, what does the American Bar Association say? And, and Sam's like, it says I have to zealously defend you. And I was like, oh, he's kind of right. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, I think they kind of hedged their bets there with like, well, what's something that he'd, like, they could have made him a prosecuting attorney that played dirty, you know, like they could have actually made it something that the audience would be torn about. But I think they kind of hedged their bets where it's like, all right, he did an unethical thing that was a morally correct thing. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's moral, but it's not ethical. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, and I think they kind of hedged their bets there. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I like it better in black and white because the movie, because the story is so simple. I, if, I mean, especially the way Scorsese, directs it it's like a cartoon it's so Mm -hmm. over the top Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean he just does these crazy things like in the editing with like the the, he you know he dissolves into the negative and he just like dissolves into solid colors and like that's a page from the oliver stone playbook no thank you exactly and yeah it does feel like that it's just like the camera's moving everywhere but it doesn't but the story isn't the kind of story, like, it isn't a story like Goodfellas where the movement really feels meaningful. It right. just feels, like, frenzied for no real reason. Yeah, yeah. And it, so it's not a slow burn. It's just, like, mm-hmm. wackadoo crazy things happening. And then trying to put, like, a earnest sort of story about uh, the family unit breaking down. Right. And, like, the modern, it just, it didn't connect. Like, I mean, there's, like, the, the big scene in Cape Fear, like, the god awful creepiest most skin crawling scene in this remake is is the the scene in the theater right which was apparently improvised Uh um maybe i don't it i've read different things but Mm -hmm. um but like where well it wasn't in the original screenplay in the original screenplay it was going to be more like the original where it was like he's uh chasing juliet lewis through the school and she like almost falls off a ledge or something yeah and then they changed it at the last minute because martin scorsese was just like i can't do this action sequence yeah it needs to be a a spiritual violence not like a physical Mm -hmm. so yeah so 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 like that scene is so potent and so scary and so naturalistic and so just like Ooh, this is like what sex predators are. This yeah. isn't like this isn't like what movie villains are. This is what actual sex predators do. Mm-hmm. Um, like the flattery and the and the like slowly putting a wedge in between her and her right. parents and anyone who might like say that their relationship is bad. Like, yeah, and 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 like um, something that really struck me about uh, his whole trying to you know seduce Juliet Lewis was um, where he's saying these like super generic things about being a teenage girl and she's just like falling for it hook line and yeah yeah and i couldn't decide you know having once been a teenage girl myself um if i would have been that easily led on because someone was like you know paying attention to me and stoking my ego and it's like oh older guy you must think i'm so sophisticated kind of but just some of the things that he says are so like, oh my God, you were pulling this out of your ass. How is she not? Where, where he's like, you know, you're feeling confused every, that time of the month. Like he, he really says yeah. something like that. And she's like, yeah, you're right. And it's like, uh, that didn't really. I she mean, doesn't come across as particularly on the ball at any point in the movie though. Yeah, that's like, true. She's just, like, I, I kind of like, like, I don't know. How do you feel about Juliette Lewis's performance? Because this is a point that a lot of people are divided on. <sighs> You know, I'm. I've never really liked her. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of hers either. <laughs> um, 
I and, and like like I'm saying that so tentatively, like she's gonna listen to this and be very upset. That, yeah, you know, I don't. I, I've just I've never really seen a performance that she's that she's done that I've really enjoyed. I mean, most most of the movies I've seen her in, like I haven't really cared for in the sure. first place. Um, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad performance. I mean, yeah, she's playing this like, you know, like naive kid who thinks that she's way more mature than she actually is, and you know, she's acting out. But just some, yeah, some of it just feels like too generic. Like, you know, she's watching MTV in her bedroom. And like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I I think she's. I mean, that's that's not her performance. That's Scorsese's well, well, choice yeah, in that, yeah, that, that that's, case. That's true. But I mean, I, I I thought she was better than the actress in the original film. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she's really good in this movie. I just think it's absolutely the wrong choice for this kind of movie for a movie that is this big uh-huh. and broad and there's max katie on the dividing wall with like the biggest array of fireworks you've ever seen in your life and like i, I remember listening to a commentary track on this where scorsese was talking about how um a lot of those fireworks they specifically like color graded mm-hmm. so they would be fireworks that you wouldn't actually see in real life just to be all that much more surreal and, mm-hmm. and or hyper real you know mm-hmm. and like it's a movie that's so big and like that that scene where it's just like you're watching Problem Child and you just see this big shadow of him and he's smoking these burrito-sized cigars. <laughs> like, everything about this movie is so over the top that, yeah. like, her naturalism, like, in a movie, mm-hmm. in a movie that was about a teenage girl falling under the sway of a sex predator, mm-hmm. like, that would be really, I think it would really work. But in this over-the-top revenge movie, mm-hmm. it's like... It, it's 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 kind of fascinating and interesting, and I I think she does a great job, but I think it's like totally wrong for really? the kind of movie it is. I don't know. I I mean, just thinking about other films where teenage girls are really over the top, I think it might be distracting, depending on how they did it. If there was like, you know, she's just like really shrill and cursing everyone out all the time, or uh-huh. you know, she's she's like you know gets a mohawk or some you know. Right, you know Martin Scorsese trying to you know, show the kids that he knows what it's like. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I liked punk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but um, that, that is funny that Martin Scorsese. It was Taxi Driver that made Mohawks big in punk. Oh yeah, that doesn't surprise the me. The Mohawk was a thing from Paul Schrader's life because it was a thing that people did in Vietnam, like before going out on a mission or something. Like it was uh-huh. a war thing. Like, mm-hmm. and it was, I think it was the movie. I mean, I, I could be completely misremembering or mm-hmm. what I read or whatever, but I'm pretty sure it was the movie taxi driver that made Mohawks like a punk thing. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Just cause by the end, like Ty- Travis Bickle is such a punk kind of like army right. jacket wearing Mohawk, like right, completely nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, yeah. But at, at any rate, I, I mean I'm I'm not saying I want the the the, sh- the shrill uh, one-liner teenager right but I think as I think the sexual naivete of that character is really uncomfortable mm-hmm. and it it doesn't feel like productively uncomfortable because the context of the movie is so crazy and comic booky <laughs> like it like I feel I don't know it's that's just me like I feel like I. I would almost rather her character be minimized the way it was in Cape in the original Cape Fear, right? Than, than there just be that really unnerving skin crawling element that doesn't really add up to that much because I can't take any of it seriously or real. Yeah, like I mean, by the end, 
he's hiding under their car. Right. And he's covered in soot. Like, he, like, it's the thing that you, like, oh, like, Sideshow Bob does it in the Simpsons Cape right. Fear, and you don't think twice about it. Right. But then, like, when you see, like, a, a human actor doing it, you're like, what is this? This is so ridiculous. <laughs> like, this movie's insane. I think, I think my, my favorite, um, over the top Max Katie moment, um, from the remake is, uh, the very end where he's drowning and you know he starts like like quoting the bible and speaking in tongues and like that's kind of creepy but then like he doesn't go under right away and there's just like a few seconds where it's just like his nose and eyes above the water and he's just glaring at nick nolte and it's the funniest fucking like thing. apocalypse now yeah style. yeah exactly but <laughs> but it's not like a close shot like it's kind of pulled back so he just kind of looks like like a deranged bullfrog like, <laughs> it just it didn't work for me and like that's the climactic or what about or what about when he's having the mock trial and he like keeps cutting to the Right to the, to the fake judge that he's talking to, and the camera is like doing this god's eye view. I was in a Christopher Durang play in college, and I basically had to do that. Yeah, yell at like like my my character was this really like over the top anti mame type. Uh, the name of the play is Betty Summer Vacation, and there's like a scene where she's like putting on her own mock trial, and like she's the judge in the. And anyway, anyway, I'm just bragging about my own. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> you're bragging about this play that you wrote. <laughs> Well, I didn't write it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, um, but oh, but to go back to uh, Julia Lewis's character, I don't. I mean, I'm kind of on the fence about her sexual naivete. Where you know, like she says, like you know, about like oh, she read Henry Miller, so it's like she's trying to present herself as as sophisticated. But then, I I, I think the thing that that bugs me is while I can absolutely empathize and relate to. Um, being vulnerable to that kind of manipulation at you know one point in my life like this is the guy who killed her dog like yesterday yeah <laughs> and he's like oh, i didn't kill that dog i didn't know about that and she's like well i guess you didn't yeah like <laughs> yeah that that part was just uh, i didn't i didn't buy it <laughs> i yeah like if the whole thrust of cape fear was like if it didn't have to follow the beats of the original if it was just like oh, I'm going to take something away from you. I'm going to seduce your daughter. Mm -hmm. And, like, that was what the whole movie was about. Mm -hmm. Like, that would work so much better for me. Yeah. But because, like, I mean, there's a point where he's choking Jodan Baker with piano wire and makes him shoot himself in the head while dressed as their maid for some reason. <laughs> like, apparently that was Steven Spielberg's idea. It's oh, like, was it really? It was like, oh, it should be the maid. Like, he should... Dresses think the maid. that's the maid and then it turns around and it's robert de niro <laughs> oh man so dark man in a dress nothing gets darker than that yeah well yeah he just looks like the fucking i mean among the, all the other things in that movie that just feel like he's cannibal lecter or the joker in the right, dark night like right. that's just like the the nurse joker moment yeah yeah <laughs> like like this movie goes so crazy and to an extent i can appreciate on it on that level mm -hmm. but then that's what makes me like it may because it's on that level it makes the sexual uh predator stuff just feel that more much more like gross and exploitative almost not exploitative but just like yeah i get no i think it is like exploitative in terms of just like this isn't in the movie because this is a movie about this right and this is a, this is in the movie because this is a movie that's trying to get under your skin and it's just gonna right. take whatever tact it can to like 
to to creep you out. Right, like like almost like they could have done something else with her character that would achieve the same impact on the family without it being that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I'm not the screenwriter. I don't know what I would suggest instead of that. I would probably just suggest instead of that, don't have the the whole beats about. I mean, also there's the. There's the assault on Nick Nolte's, uh, like, oh, friend Ileana at the Douglas's law office character. that he doesn't actually have an affair with. Yeah. I liked, you know, I, I kind of like that change over the original because in the original, like, um, Max Katie just uh, assaults this random woman that he meets in a bar. A prostitute. Oh, yeah. It's implied. Yeah. Or, or well, yeah, prostitute or, you know, a loose woman or you yeah, know, whatever yeah. you want to call her. And then... Um, they're trying to get her to bring charges against them. And she's just like, no, I have to leave town. And, you know, she books it. And it's the, 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 the remake with Ileana Douglas and like her arc, like, I feel like that's more, it's more fleshed out. It's more understandable. But with the original, it's like, what did he do to her? Oh my God. Like, it's, it's the same kind of thing like we were talking about earlier where it's, it's like, it's, it's very restricted, but at the same time, it kind of leaves you wondering well, I mean, I think I'd prefer, I mean, in both cases, that's uh, that's sort of a uh, little branch of the plot that I don't like as a, as a feminist, because it's, because it feels yeah, it's like, like women in refrigerators. It, well, and it's that, of... and it's also just like, wow, this, that was really intense. Imagine if that was a character that you cared about. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like yeah. I mean, especially in the original, but in the remake a little bit too. Yeah. It's like, it's like, woo. That's just a sample. It's like actually that was really horrific. That's yeah. like that's way more horrific than most of the things that follow. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and you're right. And in and in both cases it's like a woman who is kind of coded to be someone who you're not really supposed to care about because of her sexuality. Yeah. You know, where it's like, "Oh, I mean, she's in I, love with a married man." Well, I like, like I like that about Ileana Douglas mm-hmm. is that she I think that is sort of how the character is written and the way she plays it you care way more about oh, her. Like yeah, she she's is so, so endearing yeah. in those little moments. Yeah. She isn't just like some floozy at the law office. Right. Like, right. Cause she, I mean, that's pro- that's partly Scorsese casting her. Cause, mm-hmm. Scor- cause Scorsese, I think he's worked with Ileana Douglas before mm-hmm. and, and she's a really great actress, but she's also not traditional. Like, it's like, uh Oh, cut to the married man, like doing anything with this person. Yeah. We know something's up. Like, he she's cast as just like a real woman who actually has personality and like you can see why i mean this is actually i mean scorsese i think that the movie's tonal inconsistencies make it not work as well as it could and Mm -hmm. and but i do think that scorsese puts in some good work as far as making that family unit dissolve and like making you real and not making it just typical domestic arguing bullshit like mm-hmm. you get like you get the idea that Nick Nolte is really fucking tired of the past being brought up and you see him actively right. like stop something that could turn into him like cheating on his wife right there's I mean Martin Scorsese was talking about that in this in this interview he was, he was saying like it's it's a it's about a man being punished for his sins in the past and no matter what he do he can't escape those those things right and you get and 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 I like so I like that about Ileana Douglas is that she really makes the character endearing and interesting and you do care right. more about her than you would if it was just some attractive blonde or whatever you know like right right like some femme fatale seductress right kind right of, yeah. right or even just you know like just sexy young person like right. Ileana Douglas doesn't look 
like, oh man, she's way younger and hotter than his wife. Right. <laughs> you know, like Ileana Douglas just looks like, oh yeah, like, yeah, she's a person who made a mistake getting infatuated with a married man. Like, right. And like they genuinely have something but in, in common. Or, but in both cases yeah. they get like, but in both cases in the Cape Fear original and the, I mean, it's a little, she gets one more scene in the remake, but like they don't get many scenes. They're not real characters. And the whole idea is like, this is what could happen to someone that is actually important to the plot. Right. And right. in that in that way, it's like, ugh, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of this. Especially with the, the sexual violence being so brutal and... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's, it's there's something... I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I never want sexual violence to be subject matter in a film because obviously it's part of real life for so many people yeah you know it's an important thing to um to to like discuss and to explore but yeah you're right the way that it like hangs over both of these films and it's just like that's what drives so much of it it's super uncomfortable to watch yeah especially for a movie that isn't about women as protagonists yeah I mean, again, yeah. like, the remake, the wife is way more of a character. Mm-hmm. She even has, like, a sort of heroic moment at the end there where she's just like... <laughs> Rape me instead! <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is, it is like, a, you do see her, like, the wheels turning. Oh, and, like, yeah, she's yeah, really she's trying, trying. Yeah, yeah like, but, but it's like, but that's what the movie gives her to do. Right, exactly, exactly. It's, the yeah. movie, but then also the movie gives Julianne, Juliette Lewis, like, that, you know, that... Lighter fluid. Right. And and with the boiling water. Where and even at the end. That like, he's immune to. Yeah. That's the other thing. It's like, oh, I have to step up genetically. Yeah. Because my, <laughs> my happy mom... drank moonshine. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, again, that's like, that's why you can't take other more, more dark parts of the movie quite as seriously. Because right. it's like, oh, also this guy's superhuman. Yeah. Also, he's the Terminator. And you, at the end, his skin is melting off and you see the metal skull underneath. Like... <laughs> While he speaks in tongues. Right, yeah. exactly. But um, but I will say, like, I mean, Scorsese follows that all the way through, where even at the end, when you see that family, like, after the boat has crashed and after Robert De Niro has died uh-huh. and the film has wrapped up, the daughter and the wife are huddled together. Right. The daughter and the wife aren't running to Nick Nolte being like, thank God you saved us. Right, right. Like, Nick... And there is this just, like, implication where it's like, wow, this, this was actually, like, a... Nick Nolte did not do this. He did not right. really like. I mean, he tried, but he's just kind of weak. Yeah, I will also say he's kind of miscast. Uh, yeah, he, he he just he gives off like this kind of aura of just being way rougher around the edge. Whereas like Gregory Peck, you get the idea of like, oh yeah, this is a morally upstanding man who is being dragged through the mud. Yeah, Nick Nolte's kind of a weasel, and like like even from the first minute you see him in these like oversized glasses and this pastel suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're like, just like, oh, really? This is who I'm. Apparently he for? had to, apparently he had to like. They were like, okay, there was a problem because Nick Tolte was a big guy and Robert De Niro was a smaller guy. Uh-huh. So they're like, all right, Robert De Niro, you have to bulk up. You have to work out for months. Mm-hmm. Nick Nolte, you need to lose weight so you just look skinnier. But he just – he still has that big head. I mean, appara- <laughs> apparently originally it was supposed to be Harrison Ford. Like they really wanted Harrison Ford. Oh. And, and like Robert De Niro like gave Harrison Ford a call and was like giving him an impassion. Like, please be in this movie. Oh, that would have – I would have liked that a lot. Better. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think that would have worked better. Yeah. I was just thinking um, about uh, Robert De Niro's performance versus Robert Mitchum's. Sure. Um, 
you know, because we're talking about where, like, you know, he's, like, you know, speaking in tongues and, like, getting, you know, you know, standing up, you know, talking about, like, his genetic superiority. And um, I, I don't really know who I like better in that role just because their approaches are pretty different. Like, you know, Robert Mitchum has this, I, I mean, he, he's terrifying, but it's because he's so, like, detached. And single-minded. Right. And he, and he just kind of seems like, you know, like he's doing it because he wants revenge but i also get more of a sense with with robert mitchum with robert mitchum's take on the role is like he's just doing it because he can yeah whereas with robert de niro it feels like there's just this conviction there it's like moral quest right exactly yeah he's like a he's like a a a paladin yeah like it, like <laughs> paladin yeah um the, the in the original cape fear it's just this like amoral force of violence meets this law-abiding citizen who right. finds that being a law-abiding citizen will not be enough to defeat him. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, Robert De Niro versus Nick Nolte, it's like two... It's like a man with an absolute moral code versus a man who thinks he has a moral code but is willing to sell that off piece by piece the second he needs to. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it seems it's more of a, a, a battle... It's more of a, a battle of... <laughs> of different like laws of ethics as as opposed to a battle and and like different philosophies as opposed to Robert Mitchum just like he just exudes this creepiness behind his eyes like when he like yeah. gives a look and there's that I mean when he chases the daughter like I we forgot to mention this but like he chases the daughter and the whole almost the whole chase is shot at pelvis level so it's just like all right <laughs> Robert Mitchum's crotch chasing this girl <laughs> Like, it's interesting in a 1962 film, like, what they have to do to imply certain things. Right, right. You know, like, they, uh, but, um, but he just feels like, uh, he, yeah, he just, what, but what's interesting is because Cape, the original, is so much more realistic and so much more, uh, toned down in terms of its tone, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, it actually, he feel like, the Terminator sort of approach almost makes sense in that way, or how he's single-minded he is, and just, right. like, super capable of taking out the private detective who's hiding in the marsh and right. all that. Whereas, like, the fact that Robert De Niro is this Superman mm-hmm. who, like, can't be hurt and can hide under cars and, like... Right. Like, that feels, like, totally inconsistent with the idea that moral, that he's also morally superior or he unless he's actually more. a paladin and those are just like yeah there you go the spells that he's chosen for the day <laughs> sorry i'll stop he has a he has a healing spell he has a <laughs> plus two is there is endurance a stat in D D? a uh, constitution constant yeah plus plus three constitution <laughs> right usually before, have high constitution plus three but... constitution right before he crawls under the family car and then they they, they have the sing-along where they drive over a cactus patch right. <laughs> Should we talk about uh, Mr. Burns, a post-electric play? Yeah, why not? Um, so we saw, um, it was about two months ago, um, here in Chicago, there was this play uh, called Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. Um, and it's a, it's a in three acts. And the concept is that um, there's been some huge catastrophe in the United States, roughly present day, Um where the electric grid just shuts down. So it's like a... It's implied it's a... There's like nuclear power plants failing. Right, right. And so it's this like post-apocalyptic along the lines of like the stand or walking dead where like it's not that the world's destroyed, but basically there's like 
there's chaos and disorder and a lot of people mm-hmm. have died and people are disconnected from their families. Um, and it's so this play is just um, three vignettes over the course of about 80 years as culture rebuilds itself. And it's specifically through the lens of art and it's specifically even more specifically um, about the survival and evolution of the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons. Um, which is in which side sh- it, it in which, which is uh, a parody of the film Cape Fear, which was a recent, the remake mm-hmm. had recently come out in which Sideshow Bob gets out of jail and says, I'm going to kill you, Bart. Right. Because Bart was a witness against him. Yeah, this is the one with the, with the uh, die, Bart, die joke. No, the Bart, the, it's German. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, so this play, um, like, like the first act is two years after the catastrophe and it's a bunch of people sitting around a campfire and two of them are big Simpsons nerds. So they're trying to like, recount uh the episode just to like entertain their friends um and they're just so they're just like remembering like little bits and pieces and trying to like scrap it together and and tell it and um then the the second act is like seven years after that and it's a troupe of of traveling performers who are um their, their repertoire is just simpsons episodes and um they also do um like pastiche commercials where it, it's just like this whole um like uh like medley yeah medley thank you of uh like like all of the the comforts that they miss about being in an industrialized culture where they're talking about like you know diet coke and hot showers and they're singing like jingles from car commercials and um just like little snippets of pop songs and then they're arguing about like what happens in the episode and um so so but it's like a like a like a traveling show and they've got these like scrapped together costumes um and then the third act is like 80 years out so you know we're like a few generations removed and it is just this like heavily stylized opera basically Mm -hmm. but it's still the cape fear episode but um like it, it's just gotten to the point where so many different things have come together that um, like all the, the Simpsons characters are just like these, um, these like mythical archetypes that are little bits of everything. So like, instead of sideshow Bob, the main antagonist is Mr. Burns, but he has a uh, Joker makeup on. Right. And he sort of dances around with a knife the way Joker in the dark Knight does. Right. And, um, and there's like even a bit where he, um, does the speech from Night of the Hunter about the struggle between love and hate and like he's doing the the thing with like his his hands fighting like Robert Mitchum does in that movie um and it's just um w- w- I mean th- this was like the best play I've ever it's, seen it's ever. really it, power- like it sounds like a cute and interesting idea when it's described but it's actually incredibly moving yeah it it really is um you know, especially, I guess, especially being people who are, like, really obsessed with, with like, pop culture and really obsessed with, like, performance and, and stuff like that. It is, it was a very moving experience. Um, and actually, as a, as a fun uh, side note, um, the the third act, they actually um, construct, like, a, a houseboat stage that the opera takes place on. And um, I got a letter about a week ago from the theater where we saw it, where they said, uh, you know, Mr. Burns was our most popular play in this theater's history. They, they, um, they extended the run like two or three times. 
Um, but the houseboat that they constructed was so heavy that every time they wheeled it um, in and out for performance, um, it would break the stage a little bit. So they were doing like a fundraiser to buy themselves a new stage in time for the next show. <laughs> Like they pulled out, they pulled out all the stops. Yeah, on this yeah. Like, like they broke their stage to bring us this amazing play. Um, but uh, I, I guess the reason that I wanted to bring this up is because, like, like there's so much in this play. But, but something that I've really been thinking about is how it's this commentary on how um, pieces of of culture from previous generations kind of get nested in current culture and that's like one of the ways that um these like stories and characters kind of you know um extend their their shelf lives i, I mean um it, it's not just i, I mean th there's a there's a character in the first act um where they're trying desperately to remember um the song that that uh, that sideshow Bob sings from uh, from HMS Pinafore at the end, and no and no one can remember it. And then like a new guy comes to their camp, and they don't really trust him, and they have their guns out, and they're kind of paranoid. And then he's like, "Oh, I used to be in this Gilbert and Sullivan reenactment <laughs> opera troupe," and then he sings the song for them. And it's like, well, yeah, there there's that where it's like people who want to like keep those specific things alive, and you know you, you can still go you know and like see these centuries old operas, and you know go to the library and like get the Iliad. But then there's also just like you know you little bits memes or whatever you want to want to call them that get put into new things and like i hadn't like i said i hadn't seen either of the cape fear movies until this weekend but just from having seen that simpsons episode a million times like i was like oh okay i get that now yeah, and yeah. like i knew all these like it opens beats. with them like one of the first things they do in in the in the play is trying to figure out the exact melody of the famous like four horn right na, 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 right na, na, <laughs> And so, like, and it's and it's like, well, it's it's Cape, it's it's them trying to remember a Simpsons episode, which was based on a remake of a movie right. that came out in the '60s, which itself was sort of a reworking of Night of the Hunter. Right? <laughs> like, like, and, yeah, it's really interesting uh, play. If it ever comes to your town, yeah, absolutely, go see it. Like, it's it's a really we're we're not doing it justice. You really have to mm -hmm. see it for yourself. Um, but it is interesting that. I think probably that Simpsons episode will remain in people's minds longer than the remake of Cape Fear. Remake of Cape Fear was pretty popular as his most successful movie up to that point. It made mm -hmm. like $79 million. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's a movie that will stand the test of time. I think now its reputation, sort of rightly so, is it's one of the weaker, if not the weakest, Scorsese movies. Mm -hmm. And What about the original? Do you think that's... I think... I mean, the, the original... I mean, if you Google Cape Fear, mm -hmm. the IMDb entry for the remake is the first thing that comes up, and mm -hmm. then the original. So, I mean, old films always have a harder time, but I think just the fact that it's Gregory Peck, it's Robert Mitchum, it was a high-profile movie, and it's and it's potent, and it was remade by a notable director. I think the original will always sort of be there. I don't think it will get lost the way that certain films get lost, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like Daisy Kenyon or something, like films yeah. that were just sort of forgotten. Um, but I think... I think honestly, like the Simpsons being what they are and being broadcast the way they are, mm -hmm. like the plot of prisoner gets out of prison and is threatening the person who put them in prison. Right. And, I think that will always. And there's a houseboat. <laughs> and there's a houseboat at the end. Like the climax is a houseboat. I think that will always just go back to the Simpsons, probably. <laughs> it's it's interesting. Yeah, I I mean I you know like I said before, none of the neither of these movies really are 
my favorites after having seen them. I'm not like really, really like enamored of them, but there's something about them that's that, that just really kind of sticks with you. Just that that kind of um, you know, you know, it starts out with with this like family man, uh, lawyer, you know, successful lawyer you know, presumably pillar of his community kind of guy. And just like by the end of the movie, like he's rolling around in the mud, beating another guy with a rock. And it's just like, it's so like, like like he, he just reverts into a caveman basically Mm -hmm. because like of this, like really primal. There is, there's definitely, yeah. That sort of primal story of the breakdown of civilization. That's a very common theme in lots of thrillers and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, just because it's like, well, that's a that's a good artistic excuse to have violence. <laughs> like, like a lot of the times, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, I think Cape Fear is probably both versions are probably some of the more potent examples. It's very effective. Like yeah. um, after I saw Night of the Hunter, I was complaining about the end where it's just like this extended Christmas scene. Yeah, and like, yeah. it's Christmas and everything's nice and he gets a watch and blah blah blah. But uh-huh. like now I'm like, oh I wish there was a Christmas scene at the end of the <laughs> yeah, movie because I'm no sad Christmas. now. There'll be there's no, no Christmas. Christmas ever again. <laughs> Cape oh. Fear is a world of no Christmases. <laughs> and all flag days. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Uh, sorry, <laughs> you were drinking. <laughs> I almost did a spit take right on your soundboard. That would be awesome. Okay, <laughs> we should talk about Shutter Island. Okay. So, can we, can we take a yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's take a break and then we get back. We'll talk about Shutter Island. Let's go. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. So the 90s, uh, let's just go quickly go through the 90s for Martin Scorsese because I think it was kind of an interesting time because I think um, he didn't really, he wasn't, the, I think the aughts, I think sort of beginning with Gangs of New York and The Aviator and The Departed, I think he that was when he sort of became the big director that it's like oh he has masterpiece after masterpiece Mm -hmm. and now he's having commercial hit after commercial hit Mm -hmm. but the 90s he followed up cape fear now that he's oh well now that it's hollywood goodwill i know what i'll do i'll do the age of innocence (laughs) which uh, what is this is do you know it's based on a novel i believe it's by evelyn waugh uh yeah ever uh edith Edith wharton edith wharton my bad that's fine so he did The Age of Innocence with Daniel Day-Lewis, which is a period drama um, that was not a big hit. Um, and then after that, he did Casino, which was sort of a bigger film because mm-hmm. that was sort of anticipated follow-up to Goodfellas, mm-hmm. spiritually at least. And uh, though, again, it only made $42 million. It wasn't one of the bigger box office hits mm-hmm. of the year. It's just like a high-profile movie. Uh, then he did, then he event, and then again, he went back and he did Kundun, which was like the... One of the smallest films of his career. I don't know anything about it. That's the film about the Dalai Lama. Oh. So, yeah. He did a Dalai Lama biopic. I don't know oh, if you knew that. No, I didn't. It's completely different. The, I, so, I want to try to watch Kundun again. Because I didn't like Kundun when I saw it. But the thing I... What? Is that the one where Keanu Reeves plays Siddhartha Gautama? No. I don't think so. Okay. I'm pretty sure there's no white people in Kundun. Okay. Well, then that has a, something for it over the movie where... Um, Keanu Reeves is the Buddha. No, no. I, I think I think the, my problem with Kundun at the time was that, or at the time I saw it, which was in high school, um, was that uh, it's in English. Uh-huh. This was like pre-Passion of the Christ. So it was just oh. like, it's just all in English. Mm. And it's just, it's weird. Um, but uh, it's an interesting movie. Uh, then there's Bringing Out the Dead, uh-huh, which, which again, we talked about. about a little yeah. bit. 
Um, and then it was in 02 that he, with Miramax, he did Gangs of New York, which was like the biggest budget movie at that point. Mm-hmm. It was the high profile movie. It was the movie that Miramax was really trying to push for all the Oscars that year. Yeah, I remember being super excited about that movie coming out. Yeah, I've still never seen it. It's good. I should. Yeah. should see it. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, like Gangs of New York. And then he did The Aviator, which is a big, high-profile, Oscar-winning kind of a movie again. And then he did The Departed, which won Best Picture and was a huge box office hit. Um, that was sort of like the first movie he did that was both a huge, made a lot of money and was like huge critically. Um, and then, you know, he did a uh, he did a Rolling Stones concert film. And then in 2010, he did Shutter Island, which is... Um, which is to date, uh, actually not to date because Wolf of Wall Street made more worldwide, but, uh, Shutter Island is, was like one of his, was his biggest movie at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of unexpectedly because it was released in February. Mm-hmm. Um, it was originally, they were originally going to try to like make it an Oscar movie. And then there was all these like complications that have nothing to do with the movie that, and then they decided to delay it to February mm-hmm. and it ended up being a huge hit. Um, so, and I didn't see it then either, because, mm-hmm. you know, well, Martin Scorsese movie, why? Well, no, no hurry to see that. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm a dumb, but, so I saw Shutter Island for the first time. Uh-huh, last night. Last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should probably just say before this, uh, if you haven't seen Shutter Island, you probably don't want to listen to this conversation. That's right, because we're just, we're going to have to talk about spoilers. Yeah. Um, spoilers all over the place. Not that... So what's interesting about that, the psychological thriller with the twist ending in which thing in which the reality that you thought existed is not the real reality mm-hmm. is like, that's just the oldest thing. That was all over, that was all over the previous decade. That yeah. was like identity and that was memento. The career of M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, exactly. The career of M. Night Shyamalan. Like that became a cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I will say that Shutter Island's quote-unquote twist ending, which you begin to suspect um, pretty early on if you're actually paying attention. Oh, were you completely godsmacked by Yes. It? Oh, yeah. When I saw it in theaters, I, I didn't know where it was going, and I was just... I was completely blown away. I yeah. guess I wasn't paying close enough attention. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult you. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. I, I, I mean, I, I have the benefit of... Knowing that when it, I didn't know what the twist ending was, but I knew uh-huh. when it came out, people were like, it's great, but I didn't like that twist ending. Uh-huh. So I was expecting the twist ending. I was looking for it. I will say a lot of times though, when I see a movie, I just kind of, there's a, my brain just kind of turns off. Like yeah. I've, I've noticed, especially when I see movies in theaters, like I'm the one that's like laughing out loud at some of the dumbest jokes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to give myself a little, like, it's only like a week it, later where I'm I... like, Oh, excellent commentary on capitalism in yeah. a post-industrial society. Excellent. You know? <laughs> yeah. In my defense, I'm real dumb audience member. <laughs> I like, I like big lights <laughs> and, I, and I like the one liners. <laughs> um, Shutter Island, it, it shares a lot in common with Memento. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the thing it share, has most in common with Memento is that the the twist is satisfying on a level beyond, oh, I didn't see that coming. That was a fun. Right. It's It actually says something really interesting. And the way, I, I guess, yeah, let's start at the end. The way Scorsese shoots the twist is really great in that he doesn't show his hand. Um, there's so many movies that climax with like 
but Bruce Willis was dead the whole time and the music swells and right. it cuts all these different parts of the movie but then you see the real version of it mm-hmm. not the version they imagined and mm-hmm. then like they show they like they go back and they show you all the clues and then yeah, they're like yeah. ta da <laughs> but because Shutter Island has if you're really into it, which I was, I thought it was really exciting and I thought yeah. it was really well written and it's a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, God, it's, it's so nice to see a movie like this that is this sort of um, mainstream psych- psychological thriller that's just like, that is not, that is shot really intelligently yeah. and really beautifully. And uses color really well. Like, yeah, yeah. It's not like, like gritty, desaturated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, just, I, I know that you want to get back to that, but I just want to tangent really quickly. I don't know if Scorsese was going for this, but, um, rewatching it, I noticed, especially in like the dream scenes, um, it really reminded me of one of my favorite painters, Rene Magritte, who was okay. a, a Belgian surrealist. Oh, right. Yes, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, saw, we saw the saw, Magritte exhibit. Yeah. Um, so he was a, a surrealist, but a lot of, uh, most of his paintings are very concrete and sort of have these, um, play around with uh, it with these very like clean cut images of bourgeois um life in the mid 20th century yeah. like like he has um he's very famous for like his repeating images of men in bowler hats um and you know you know kind of things like that there's this one painting that he did very early in his career called the menaced assassin um and it's like this um this uh woman and she's been strangled and she's like laying on a, a fainting couch and the man who presumably killed her is like looking at a, a victrola next to her and and he's like surrounded by these men who have like seen what he's done and they're about to capture him but he's just completely oblivious because he's looking at the record player um you can Google it. You have Google image search. I don't know why I'm describing it. But yeah, just, just that, that sort of like... It might um, be in their car. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, just, just that sort of... Um, that mixture of, you know, um, like very clean cut, presentable, um, polished... Uh, yeah, like, like, like middle class 20th century bourgeois life with this like really disturbing edge to it and this real sense of menace and danger and that something's really not right here Mm -hmm. and just like that that balance of that but it's still really beautiful to look at and it's really you know there's that magritte painting of is it someone's scar or someone's wound or something but they just they're just metal bells underneath their skin like oh yeah I can't recall the exact context of the metal bell, but that's something when you mentioned Magritte, like that's the first thing I thought too in terms mm-hmm. of this, because I think there's like one shot where you see like the back of someone and it's all Oh yeah, that beautiful shot with Michelle Williams where she turns around and like her back is is it's not on fire, but it's kind of it's like smoldering wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my god, it's gorgeous. And or any or the, the or the the sort of the snowfall of papers in the Nazi yeah. officers like office. Yeah. Um yeah, like those like, scenes like are... Like, who, sh- who shoots World War II scenes with that much color? Yeah. Martin fucking Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. That's who. <laughs> well, I mean, the, it, there, I mean, it also, it has, I mean, it's beautiful while you're watching it. If the mo- if the story made no sense, you would still like, well, at least it had those moments in it. Right, right. But, like, it also serves the purpose of, like, maybe these things are more vivid because they're completely imagined. Right. Like, maybe because they're completely in his head, maybe mm-hmm. these memories he has that may or may not have happened. And, like, oh, it's so smart the way he does that, to, to go back to the to memories. Like, the the the, the, the execution of all the guards at Dachau. Oh, my God. Like, that shot, that panning shot of all the guards getting 
getting shot down. Like yeah. it goes on just like two seconds too long yeah. before it cuts. And yeah. like where at first you think, oh, he's just he's just emphasizing like the amount of pe- people being killed, but then it just goes to an insane rate where it's like, wait, why would they line up so many soldiers yeah. like that? Like it just it becomes surreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true because like like that that just that one sequence of like. It's just, it's just five, like, like maybe ten seconds of the scene, but it starts off with, like, yeah, fucking Nazis are getting it. So, like, okay, you can stop now. Yeah, you can yeah. stop now. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So, so anyway, to go back to the ending, what I love about the ending is there is no swelling music. Here are all the clues you missed. Right. Oh, isn't that clever? We just, mm-hmm. here's the magic trick. Yeah. We just did it. Congratulations. Voila, the prestige. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So when they're, so they're telling you what happened in the movie mm-hmm. and you're not believing it. But then it just keeps going on yeah. and on and on and eventually you're like, "Oh, I guess this is I guess this is real. Like right. I guess this is actually the real thing right. and this isn't him hallucinating." I think I think. Right. And it, it puts you in that paranoid mindset where you at the end, you know, he's unable to, you know, he has that breakthrough but he's unable to hold on to it. He he retreats back into his fantasy. Or does he? I think he does. Yeah. You you think he does? I don't think he does. No. No. I um, and this is why he the last thing that he says before he goes off to his lobotomy is he says um, he 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 says to Mark Ruffalo I'm one he says something like I wonder is it better to live as a monster or die as a good man. Okay, so he's willingly getting a lobotomy. That's what I think. I think yeah. I oh, think that wow. he's saying what he needs to say because. Like now, now that he's like integrated reality into what he knows about himself, he just can't live with it. That's really that's interesting. I didn't even think about that. I thought he just sort of retreated. It like, yeah. Like I mean, ultimately they're saying the same thing, but but your interpretation makes sense to me, mm-hmm. and it also is way way more powerful. Like to open to like willingly get a lobotomy. Yeah, yeah. Like, just because like. A, as opposed to like retreat to a fantasy, it's like I'm not going to go through this cycle anymore. I'm going to end the exactly. cycle by removing me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, I, well, I, I think I think part of it is just because it's like, you know, he he developed this psychosis because he couldn't deal with the guilt of being responsible for the death of his family. Um, so I think it's you know you know it's that it's like okay, well I've been quote unquote cured because I'm not you know. It, I'm not. I'm not dealing with this delusion anymore. But I still can't deal with it. But then also on top of it, there's a moment where Ben Kingsley says to him, "You know, we had a breakthrough with you nine months ago, and you don't remember this because you regressed." Mm-hmm. So I think part of it is just like he can't live with himself, and also like he's like he kind of realizes like I can't keep causing all this chaos. You know, these are people who yeah. are trying to help me, and I just you know. So I think he just wants to end it. Like it's almost the. It's not just him being in. It's not just him not being able to deal with the truth. You think it's almost like a responsible action he's taking? I do, yeah. Um, and something I um, something that I noticed on the second watch, um, because you know it's like I knew what was going to happen, and not only does it like knowing what happens, it's still so watchable. You know, it's it's not one of those things where it's like it's just the twist and like that's all there is. Like like watching it unfold from basically from the perspective of um the hospital staff yeah um is just as entertaining and just as interesting seeing like like how are they navigating this and like how is he navigating in his own mind explaining what's going on you know um like like that in itself and also um 
I hadn't noticed this like the first time I saw it because, you know, it's just like you get so caught up in like his own paranoia and like yeah. the cultural paranoia. Um, it's such a beautiful meditation, I think, on remorse. Mm hmm. Because, you know, it's like he's delusional. He has this false self. He has these hallucinations of his dead wife and of this woman that he made up. But there's just something about um, his beliefs and those images and those dream sequences that just communicate like these emotions and these memories that he's struggling with and can't quite surface. Mm -hmm. And it's really moving. You know, you know, just like like kind of watching it from that perspective. It was like watching a completely different movie. It's it's it is very much a thing that you could this this could easily have been a Christopher Nolan movie. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. It's it's very similar to the themes of of like Inception, mm -hmm. which you haven't seen, but uh, also um, Memento, right? Which, um, yeah, and um, I, I I'm really excited to watch it again. Actually, I find. It's funny you say you get so caught up in the mystery. Mm -hmm. I find the implications that ultimately aren't real. Like, ultimately, that conversation he had in the cave was just delusions. Right. I mean, do you... I will say right now, do you think that there's any reading of this... Is there any, like, basis of a reading of this movie in which that is the truth, but they've got to him? Um... I, I mean I think so. I mean I mean like you like you said um even after Ben Kingsley tells him what's going on like like you you said that you still didn't trust that. Right. And like up until the very end you you just didn't believe it. Yeah, it wasn't until that me final memory he had was so complete and so mm -hmm. powerful and affecting that I realized like that has to be the truth. Mm -hmm. Um that I thought it but apparently like you know Martin Scorsese said like apparently there are some people who thought who didn't believe it. There are some people who like, they walk out of that movie in denial about what Leonardo DiCaprio has done. And they right. think like that it's about, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio. They, they, they think Leonardo DiCaprio um, has basically just been brainwashed. I mean, I, that's not my read on it, but yeah. I think that's totally valid just because, you know, um, paranoia and being manipulated by authoritarian structures is such a strong theme in that movie. Yeah. Like, like I, I mean, e even if, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, what he believes his life has been, even if he's right, you know, he's still someone who's been, whose, like, whole life has just been controlled by... Like, you know, he's been drafted and sent off to war and then he's, you know, he's a U.S. Marshal. So he's being, you know, you know, disconnected from his family and sent all around the country for his job. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he's not getting his her, his wife the help that she needs right. like, uh, psychiatrically and psycho psychologically. Right, right. And yeah, so so even even if his version of even if Teddy's version of reality is correct and Teddy is the real person like he's. He's still helpless and manipulated and, you, you know, just the same that, um, that Andrew, you know. It's, uh, yeah, throughout the movie, there are all these, like, really, really strong evocations of these post-war anxieties. Of, mm -hmm. that keep, multiple people talk about the uh, hydrogen bomb and the atom yeah. bomb and, yeah. and, and the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even I, I think there's that, um, that mistrust of... Um, of 
mental health practice. Yeah. Which, you know, is something I I mean, there, there's a lot in this film that is very much of its time period, but at the same time resonates with how people feel today. Well, apparently um, the novel uh, was written. It was someone who was responding to Iraq. Okay. Yeah. I could totally see that. that yeah. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, but you know, when I, when I originally saw the film, um, I assume that like, you know, Ben Kingsley and Max von Sydow and like, you know, like, like they're the bad guys, you know, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the second watch, it's like, and, and and I guess also like, you know, now um, having a better understanding of psychology, I mean, I'm not like a psychologist, but, you know, just having like um, a better understanding, you know, having, having uh, met people who are living with schizophrenia, um, you, you know, so just like, you know, my own life experiences um, and having, you know, more empathy, uh, I, I mean, I really saw the compassion in what they were trying to do, like, especially Ben Kingsley. I think the performance he gives is so yeah. good, you know, where he does kind of come off, you know, at first blush as this sort of like untrustworthy villainous. It's funny. It's funny. Know. When I first watched this movie and every character actor would pop up and like it would be a famous character actor or a right. famous actor, like in the case of Ben Kingsley, they would pop up in these roles that seem so stock. <laughs> I was just like, okay, I get it. It's a Martin Scorsese movie. Everyone wants to work with Martin Scorsese, so right. he can just put everyone in the world in all of these tiny roles. <laughs> but like, it stick went Patricia but, Clarkson in a cave. Yeah, you can stick <laughs> Patricia Clarkson in a cave. You can Dev Levine that speech. You can uh, Jackie Earl Haley in that cell. Yeah. Oh my god. Like, like I get it. Everyone's <laughs> ever, but like that was me assuming that the doctor was something wrong going on. And like uh-huh. every time that he asked for an aspirin and he was handed an aspirin, I was like, oh no. Yeah. Like even yeah. before she said, you didn't take the aspirin, did you? Like uh-huh. I I was very scared that he was ha- getting handed like the, those little white, you know, paper cups uh-huh. with the two aspirin oh, in right. it. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, oh no, it's starting. Mm-hmm. And like being untrustworthy, the idea of like, look, I just want to better society. And if yeah. that means I must do gross experiments on like, I mean, especially uh, Max von Sydow, yeah. <laughs> like as the, as the German, like you instantly are like, okay, I know this character. I see right. what you're doing here. Right. And then the way that it subverts all of that and it it plays on your own assumptions of how this genre film will play out. Yeah. And it, to in order to put you in the head of the paranoid Teddy, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. And the Emirates like, no, actually they've been trying really hard to be compassionate yeah. to this person who's extremely violent. Or you know? this person who, or this person who is not compassionate. He actually is like, look, I've <laughs> like his speech about how violent a person Teddy is. Doesn't seem like empty provocation. Right. Like that, that speech is so striking before you know what's going on. Oh, you mean you mean Ted Levine's speech? Ted Levine's yeah, speech about yeah. like it, it, about them being animals and like right. would you crack open my head to eat the like, yeah? The... Well, well, yeah. I mean that makes perfect sense though because like he's the Law and Order side yeah. of Shutter Island. You know, you know. I mean, I mean, he's, he's the... seen all of the damage that Ted, oh, yeah. that uh, mm-hmm. that Dennis is the real name of the character. Uh, Andrew. Andrew. Andrew Latus. Yeah. Andrew Latus. That not Dennis. Andrew Latus. That Andrew has done on this island, yeah. and so like he's not he's not fond of this game at all. Right. Like he, you know, and you can actually see like his side of it more and it's less like, oh, it's just Ted Levine being random, creepy, violence obsessed (laughs) man number three. And it's like giving weird, surreal speeches that have no context. And it's, and it's just like adding to the spooky tone of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Like everything. Yeah. Everything dovetails back into that paranoia. Mm -hmm. um, And the idea of putting you 
in in uh, Teddy's shoes so strongly that mm-hmm. you would that you are uh, your initial thought is oh yeah there's no way Ben Kingsley's telling the truth in that lighthouse right, right. and I I wonder if this I mean originally David Fincher was apparently going to be uh, was one of the directors that was you know in talks to direct this mm-hmm. and I wonder. Uh, you know, you again, you could see a Christopher Nolan doing this film. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder if it was anyone other than Martin Scorsese who had grown up in that post-war period and really understood that sort of that that sort of paranoia. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if those themes of that era and, you know, obviously the parallels that era has with, you know, the, the post-Iraq, you know, the post-Bush years, mm-hmm. uh, the sort of the post-9-11 years of America, like those parallels, the... The, the 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 parallels between McCarthyism and and the sort of patriot patriotic uh, jingoism, like, like those witch hunts, yeah, yeah, like that's obviously that's been drawn a lot of times. I wonder if that would be quite as strong, or if if other directors might lean too hard on the genre elements and like really because there isn't a, there isn't like one scene in this movie that I would just like plop out scene party style. Like there right. isn't one three minute section of this movie that I'd be like, that's a great constructed scare. You know, right, it's right. all, it all works because it's thematic. It's yeah. all, it all works because it had, because it all goes back into who the characters are and make, putting you in the mindset of the characters and then think like if this movie ended in an empty twist that didn't really, I don't know if I would like be super enthusiastic about it as a thriller. Like I would be like, oh, this really cool looking movie. It was uh-huh. exciting. I enjoyed watching it, but I don't know if I would be like really into it mm-hmm. the way I feel like I really am into Shutter Island yeah. because of those last 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if it's like that's because Scorsese isn't the first person you think of for a movie like this. He's never done a movie like this before. He's never. Right. I mean, Cape Fear has horrific moments, but it's not a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um after hours kind of deals almost in a similar way of building paranoia through like weird symbols and like mm-hmm. characters that are acting strangely and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it's not really the same thing. It's more of a dark comedy and it's mm-hmm. it's more about the propulsive energy and it's not, you're not, there's not really a thematic rich center to after hours other than like a fear of women. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really know what else from his previous work I would really compare um, I mean, I guess, and this is a huge stretch and I know everyone's going to like roll their eyes, but you know, with stuff like uh King of comedy uh-huh. where, you know, it's like you have this protagonist whose view of the world is completely whacked, yeah. but there's a certain amount of empathy for him and mm-hmm. you can kind of see it, you know, from, from his perspective. Cause like, you know, R- Rupert Popkin, it's like, He's he's this like, you know, really maladjusted, obsessed uh-huh. guy, but because you know, everyone has this like socially agreed upon restraint, no one's really willing to rein him in except yeah. for Jerry Lewis. You know, there, it, it's it's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting point. Like it's all you could also say the same of like Taxi Driver. Like right, those movies, right. if those were restructured, like say if those movies were made today in today's Hollywood market where it's like, no, where's the hook? You know, where's the hook? Uh-huh. It can't just be a character study. It also has something that people walk out talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, you could also see, like, well, maybe there's a version of King of Comedy where you see his fantasies that he has in King of Comedy where he's having lunch and and Jerry's talking to him about... And it's not revealed until, like, halfway through the movie that those are all right. fantasies. Like, there's maybe a version of Taxi Driver where uh-huh. he is actually, like, this noble hero that all the people on the streets are cheering for and right. stuff. And then it's revealed, like, oh, no, this guy's actually just a sick... 
you know, like I mean, yeah. those would be worse versions of those movies. It doesn't <laughs> not it's not a it's not necessarily a structure that would fit all movies, right? But it's still it's still but a that's theme a really that the point. protagonist yeah. has to has to deal with. Um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, I think I I mean something. I, I think I kind of said this earlier, but with Shutter Island, I was just kind of thinking about, um, I mean, not just about delusions, but just about like mental illness in general mm-hmm. and how it really, you know, has this comment about, you know, even with something as like, you, you know, garden variety is like my own experiences with depression and anxiety, where it's like, you know, objectively or even subjectively through, you know, someone else's eyes, you know, a, a comment or a situation is not a big deal. But then, you know, just because like I'm seeing it through this, you know, filter yeah. of an illness, it just becomes this completely different thing. Like I love um, that that confrontation that he has with uh, Jackie Earl Healy and then Ben Kingsley is pointing out like how like he's like here's the transcript from your conversation and here's where he tells you what's actually going on and Leo's like no that's not what he meant he meant this yeah yeah you know it's, I just had today a, a spiral out my own paranoid depression yeah. moment uh, where, where someone said something on a forum I'm on and I took it to mean like oh I see that that was a that was an insult to me. And then I was like, oh, right. I can't take this. I need to get off this. And like, I spiraled off into like the worst possible reading. And then when I went back, this person had edited their, their post to be like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> like, like, it was yeah. literally nothing. But I had assumed the worst, not only the worst intentions, but the worst outcome. Right, right. So, right. like, I know I'm completely aware of that. And I've, I've completely uh, lived that life. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is there. I mean, Shutter Island is... It's also a movie, I feel like. I probably would have more to say if I'd seen it twice. Because uh, it is really difficult <laughs> to... Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of Michelle Williams' uh, Michelle Williams's performance? I mean, she didn't have a lot to do. I you know? I mean, I mean she, well, well, okay. When I say that, I mean, like, for most of the film, she's not portraying an actual person like she's portraying this like idealized version of however he remembers his wife it's really just that one scene at the end so i don't i don't really feel like i have that much to say about her performance i i don't i don't know if this is her performance or the way it's written Mm -hmm. but i was hoping and maybe this is just you know trying to string along all the more like this the audience's skepticism but I was hoping once he has that final flashback and he sees what she's done to her kids, mm-hmm. that there would be something in her performance that would portray that capability of, like, being able to be that person. Right. And and that wasn't really there. She sort of acts in the same sort of dreamlike, you know, perfect wife memory way that uh-huh. she was before. Or, like, kind of demure, a little quieter, like, yeah. very even tone. And I don't know if that makes it better because they didn't go obvious, like hysterics like oh once you see the right. real thing you see she was crazy I mean, I mean there is that one line that she has that does come off as really creepy where he's like where are the kids and she says they're in school and he says it's saturday school's not in session and she says my school is and like that's a little creepy well, and yeah, then, and then she's the then the she's pond. just placing them up on the kitchen table like, yeah yeah like there's creepy things she said she says but she doesn't deliver them 
I don't know. I think it's probably that's why I was asking you because I was divided on this. I think mm-hmm. it's maybe probably better that she doesn't like deliver them for maximum spooky creepiness. Oh yeah, yeah. I know. I t- I totally agree with you. But because... at the same time, I was like, I wanted to see something there in her eyes or something that was like, oh my god, like this woman is actually like there's something really wrong here, other than the right. obvious effects of of the, right. the, the, the wrongness. And well, I, well also, I don't know if I saw that, but I, again, I don't know if that's a problem. Well, also, I mean, with, with her and, you know, even, even with him, it's like, you, you get these labels applied to them in terms of what's going on with them psychologically, but you don't know if that's correct because, yeah. you know, Ben Kingsley has this line where it's like, oh, well, your wife was, was diagnosed with manic depression, but it's like, okay, well, this is the fifties, you know, we have a certain understanding of mental conditions. And also this is someone who didn't receive help. So mm-hmm. we don't really know, you, you, you know, what was going on with her. Like, um, like I saw, uh, well, we both saw, uh, welcome to me this weekend. That's it's right. The we new, saw the uh, new Kristen Wiig movie. Yeah. The new movie with Kristen Wiig. And, um, she plays a character. It's, I thought it was excellent. Patrick. Well, anyway, that's, that's a different podcast. <laughs> I, think it's pretty, but... I think it's pretty good and worth seeing. I didn't... <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> sure, sure. So, um, so Kristen Wiig plays uh, this woman who's diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and going into it like, like I'm not, I I know a little bit about borderline personality disorder, but going into it, I was a little uncomfortable. I was like, oh, is this going to be like an accurate portrayal? Is this going to be respectful? And um, I was lucky enough to see it um, with uh, the director Shira Piven. Um, uh, in attendance and she did a Q and a after, and she said that, um, the way that it was, uh, written and the way that it was produced was that, um, the screenwriter just wrote the character and then kind of a- applied a label to her afterwards. So it's not necessarily that like, she's like the ambassador of borderline personality disorder. It's like, she's just this woman who the way that she acts and the way that she processes the world doesn't fit in with everyone else. So, you know, psychology has just like been applying these labels to her. Like she even has like a line in the movie where she's like, well, I've been diagnosed as this and this and this who can keep up. And you know, so I think it's kind of the same thing where it's like, okay, well, you know, we've put a label on these characters to describe their actions, but it's not necessarily, you know, they're not necessarily, going to act in a way that you can predict from reading the DSM. Yeah, I can I I I I I can buy that. I think that's I think that's a good that's a fair point. And I also think that um y- you know her not acting in like in an out there or sinister way just makes that scene so much sadder cuz it's like you know you know right before he shoots her like they're holding each other and they're just saying I love you to each other and they're like like that to me, I I mean that was oh my god, it just broke my heart. Like it, and it was so much more than like if he just like, you know, gone crazy and 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 throttled her or yeah, something. Yeah. Where it was like like he didn't want to let her go, but he he did what he felt like he had to do. I think based on the way it's shot, I feel like there is still a certain element of the subjectivity of memory applied to sure. that to that moment sure yeah like maybe he did actually throttle her but like yeah or yeah like he's you know he's remembering the emotions behind it he's not necessarily right. remembering the exact thing um just i mean just the way it's lit and shot it still feels closer to the dream world than the reality that we see at the end of the film mm-hmm. um though obviously not as overtly surreal so yeah shutter island mm-hmm. I can't. I can't think of anything else to say. But I really want to rewatch it uh, eventually. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, something else that I wanted to say about it um, was uh, on this rewatch. Um, I feel like it has 
some really interesting things to say about depictions of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, <laughs> where um, you know Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio is this like white straight guy. He's able bodied. He's handsome. He's part of the greatest generation, and he's a U.S. marshal. So he's like he's the guy who should have you know everything under control. I mean, in any other movie, he'd be played by like you know Clint Eastwood or someone like that, and he would just be this like you know sturdy, unflappable hero. But then the way this movie shows you know, the effects of being a war veteran and the effects of being a man who has to be emotionally cut off from his family because that's what the culture expects of him and who has to, you know, turn to drinking to deal with his emotions because he can't ask for help. And just like all the trauma that builds up in his life that is so closely tied in with um, how men are expected to act in this cultural and historical moment yeah it's, like, it's I, no surprise that like the fantasy he retreats into is u.s marshal yeah exactly like, like i mean he was a US, he was a u.s marshal at some point but definitely like he like the man the legend you know yeah like, yeah exactly and and like he's got mark ruffalo is like little buddy and yeah, like yeah. you know you know it's 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 kind of a power fantasy but just watching but then, this yeah, film I mean, he, to talk about like the subversion of the power fantasy, like Mark Ruffalo calling him boss, yeah, takes on a completely different context by the end of the movie. It yeah. sounds so sad and like yeah, it it's sounds like he's like calling he's, him champ or yeah, something. Yeah, like he's like yeah. a little brother or something. Yeah. Oh my oh. god. But yeah, yeah, just just like watching it and thinking like, you know, of like of like all the trauma that this man has taken on and just like how he's complete like he can't deal with it to the point where it's like his reality breaks. It, it just made me think, like, how how is it that there that we're not seeing, you know, everyone who's been in this situation from this generation, you, you know, having a psychotic break because there's just like so this like huge psychic burden yeah. that's just been laid on this entire generation. There, it's just, there's way more. It was just like it was not part of cinema at that time. Like, there's Henry Fonda in Daisy Kenyon mm-hmm. is definitely like sort of a broken man who has come back from the war and he has PTSD. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's not even a movie about. Like, one of the reasons why I love Dead Daisy Kenya so much is uh-huh. like it's not even a movie about PTSD, but it's so strongly like his character being the quieter, more broken, more silent one. Right. But in general, that sort of thing just wasn't talked about about yeah. World War Two. Yeah. Um. And so there are films like in the sixties and seventies about people coming home from Vietnam. Sure. You know, there that's that there you know there's coming home and there there's uh, uh what's the uh, Bob Bob Clark movie Death Dream. Mm-hmm. Um. And that sort of thing, but it was just like in the era of films that were in which protagonists could pro- conceivably be war veterans, mm-hmm. it was not an era. It was, I mean, this is it's funny, this ties back into a celluloid closet because you know, before you could actually have gay people, a lot of what is talked about is the coded version of gay, which is just the idea of the sissy, which is the idea of like uh-huh. there is this absolute standard of masculinity mm-hmm. and if you change your name from marion to john wayne then <laughs> then 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 you can be this man and you can but you have to be like the biggest most strong most dependable man in order to show any emotion towards anyone else right and to and to relate your own fears and the right. people who do comment on uh 
you know, on, on their insecurities and stuff, those are the people who are labeled as kind of like sissies. Those mm-hmm. are like, mm-hmm. that's the, the sort of queer subtext in Rebel Without a Cause and stuff is mm-hmm. that he's saying all of these things that no one else is going to say. And then like that actually is coded a little bit as gay in that movie. And mm-hmm. like, it's it's one of those things that Hollywood just couldn't acknowledge for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And then by the time it could acknowledge it, manhood had already taken on a slightly different tone. Sure. Um, sure, that or, makes a lot like, of sense. Like, I mean, in, in a... By the time it could, they could acknowledge it, it was like a post-feminist world where it was a different kind of strident manhood. Right, right. And, and, you, and you could see a different kind of man as like sexy. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, j- j- I just kind of realized from what you were, from what you were saying, I, m- I misspoke um, where, w- w- with saying like, I can't believe that, you know, men of that generation haven't experienced that level of psychological trauma. I should have said that they have, but it's, yeah, it's just something that there was no language for it. And it's something that like still in, isn't in really. Cinema. Yeah. In, in cinema and also in culture, you know, where it's just something that wasn't talked about. I mean, I, I mean, I might be talking out my ass here, but I'm pretty sure um, that PTSD wasn't really considered. Um, it, it wasn't given a, a name until after Vietnam, you know, and it, it really w- was only like the, the actions of like, you, you know, Vietnam vet activists who kind of, you know, raise that awareness around, yeah, around like PTSD. Shell shock. Yeah, shell that. shock, battle fatigue, but, you know, it w- really wasn't seen. I remember hearing something um, a few years ago on on NPR, mm-hmm. uh, the, the font of all knowledge for white people, um, about um, how there was this movement among veterans to make PTSD a condition that merited the purple heart, uh-huh. but that, um, but that the military was hesitant to do that. And part of it was because, you, you know, there's this idea of like, oh, well, it's not, you know, physical trauma, yeah. you know, and, and this, this medal is for someone who's physically wounded, not mentally. And like, there's this disconnect, but also because if PTSD was a condition that merited the purple heart, like the majority of veterans yeah. would have the purple heart. Right. And like that kind of creates I, a huge, I will amount. say last episode of the director's club podcast, the John Houston episode, um, we did talk about the documentary John Houston directed in 1946 called let there be light, mm-hmm. which is just a document of, um, of veterans of world war two um, in group therapy sessions. Oh, wow. So it was a thing. There was a therapy. There were resources. It just wasn't talked about publicly. Right, right. But there was definitely the concept of okay. PTSD. Like, okay. medically speaking, the concept of post-traumatic stress was a, a real thing. Mm-hmm. It was just not a cultural thing. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's that's a better way to put it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just, I just remembered that. Uh, and also, I got to see if I can find that. I think it might be on YouTube. Um, but and, I mean, it's not like Let There Be Light was a big movie or even like, I think right. it was a, I think if I recall correctly, it was a movie that mortified the studio, mm-hmm. you know, because it was just, cause it was so not done. Like you don't talk about these things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, your, your points are still very valid and stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and it's definitely interesting that like his fantasy is I am going to stop the horrors of the Holocaust from happening in America. Like his, his fantasy right. isn't just. I'm going to be the hero and find this missing person or get uh-huh. to the bottom of this. He's like, his grandiose fantasies in that cave he has is like, is like, oh, it happened here. It happened here, but it won't happen in America because right. I'm on the cave. Like it really right. is that big of a goal and masculine 
Right, and and he and he also conflates like um, his guilt over not saving his daughter yeah. with the the victims of the Holocaust at at Dachau, where right. where there where I think there's there's one scene where he's like remembering um, seeing um, the the bodies of, of the victims of the concentration camp, and they're saying to him, "You could have saved us." Yeah, and it's like, well, he's just one guy. You know? <laughs> I, mean, right, I mean, right. not to be glib, but but I mean, yeah. So I mean, it, it is dealing with uh, larger cultural things, and it's interesting that in a movie. For 2010 it's dealing with larger i mean they obviously like i said they have parallels to the post 9-11 world but yeah, it is absolutely. dealing with uh cultural things that are specific to an earlier generation yeah and in that way i'm really happy that it was martin scorsese that directed this film yeah yeah maybe maybe someone of our generation could make a remake in 30 years and <laughs> that would be weird put its own like but yeah by know. then people are having ptsd because all the electric grids fail yeah <laughs> And we're just sitting around a campfire trying to remember the end to Shutter Island. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. No, because it was an anagram. Yeah, it was an anagram. <laughs> and Rorschach was there. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, the, something I love about Martin Scorsese is that he uh, is constantly doing interesting things. Like, no one... I can't really think of any other filmmaker who get into that age is doing things that are interesting like that. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't think of another filmmaker in his 70s who would make a Shutter Island. You know, like, usually by that time, they're spinning their wheels like Woody Allen, or they're like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's later films are, Mm -hmm. you know, so they have their their fans and defenders and stuff, but they're obviously not as potent as his earlier thrillers. He's got his shtick. Yeah, yeah. But like, but uh, I mean, Martin Scorsese is still trying new things and doing different things. And I think both Cape Fear and Shutter Island were him stepping sort of outside of his comfort zone. Like you can, yeah. like Wolf of Wall Street. I love Wolf of Wall Street. I probably like it a little better than Shutter Island, I think. Mm-hmm. But like Wolf of Wall Street is way more in his comfort zone as far as the, oh, the yeah. tone and the editing and the pace and the, mm-hmm. and and like it's a good time. And like, yeah. I mean, this movie, he was really depressed while he was editing it. Mm-hmm. Like this movie really got to him. And then the next movie he made was Hugo, like this lighthearted children's <laughs> movie about or film film preservation <laughs> you know like where he's like oh you know what maybe i get to play with a toy here i'm gonna play with this 3d this 3d camera i think he earned it yeah no he absolutely did that's what i'm saying like i hate hugo but like he earned that but i i think it's it's fascinating that he um does that he is continuing to do these things so late into his career yeah absolutely i mean i mean something that um i really got out of watching Kate Fear and Shutter Island back to back was um just a realization of his versatility as a director. Yeah. Where there's all you know, like you said, there's a lot of elements to his films that are very much like signature signature Scorsese and, you know, characters and themes that he likes to come back to. But, you know, at the same time, it's like this is the same director, you know, he's making two psychological thrillers, but just like like the feel of them are so you know so different and and they're so distinct and i i i, I don't know i i, I kind of i was kind of watching it and i was like you know what i don't think i'm giving martin scorsese enough credit because like yeah. mo- like most of the directors who i would consider like my favorite directors you know very much like have their thing down and they have like like the the theme and the tone and mm-hmm. everything that they just like to revisit over and over and like i love that but i 
I, I just I don't yeah I don't I don't think I've given old old, old Marty enough enough credit. I I, th- I think he's a good director. Yeah, I think Martin Scorsese's I think he's talented. Made a few good films. Well, no, it's funny what you said. It's, it's true. <laughs> like I never thought of Steven Spielberg as one of my favorite directors mm-hmm. until I just sat down and like I just sort of thought about like all of the movies of his that I absolutely utterly adore. Where it's right. just like I don't know. There are other directors of mine that I consider my favorite directors, mm-hmm. and it's because. They do things, their movies tend to have things in them that I like. So even a lesser Altman film, I'll still be interested and want to see. Right. Whereas like a lesser Spielberg film, it's like, yeah. I don't give a crap about Jurassic Park 2 or, <laughs> or uh, my, War Horse. War Horse or even like something like Minority Report, which is like, it's just like, whatever, that's not as interesting. But like, I just sat down and I was just like, oh. Wait, I mean, E.T. is one of my favorite movies ever. Jaws is one of my favorite movies ever. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of my favorite movies ever. And Close Encounters of Their Kind is amazing. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, okay. No, he is actually one of the greatest directors. I love Spielberg's work. But it's just easy to discount him because it's like, ah, yeah, it's Spielberg. Yeah, and yeah, And then Scorsese, exactly. it's just like, yeah, yeah, Taxi Driver. Raging right, Bull. right, exactly. exactly. But then, yeah, you, yeah, but then like, you sit down, because you just have the cultural idea of Taxi Driver, the right. cultural idea of Raging Bull. And then you sit down, you watch Raging Bull, and you're like, Oh my god, this is really like it's, it's, it's obviously, but it's like, oh, this is really powerful. Like yeah. there's a reason everyone says Raging Bull, and that's because right. Raging Bull is just like this jaw-dropping film and it's like that jaw-dropping film was just one part of his career that wasn't even necessarily his greatest film and you being really good. Oh yeah. Martin Scorsese is the real deal probably when all is said and done, like probably one of the top 10 best directors of all time. Like, I mean, I don't know. It, making lists is weird. But, like, mm-hmm. when all is said and done, uh, who's had a career like Martin Scorsese? Right. You know, and right. I'm Cape Fear and uh, especially, you know, Shutter Island are, like, really interesting parts of that career. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, I mean, I mean, I think we were kind of, like, knocking Cape Fear. Sorry, Sean. Yeah. Um, but, y- yeah, I, I think, like, a lesser director, like, that would be their they're right, like, they're like best. It's their true. best renowned work. It's you true. Know? You you watch Cape Fear and you're like, oh, this isn't. This isn't. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's been spoiled by everything else. Exactly. <laughs> um. So anyway, thanks again, Sean, for contributing to most likely. Um, yes, thank you so much. Most likely got funded. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're making it. They're... To five five listeners of uh five listeners of Directors Club donated fifty dollars, and it got funded with. Uh, like it got uh, at the end, it was like about sixty dollars over or something. So yeah. you guys are the reason this movie's getting yeah, made. yeah. Th- this that two hundred fifty dollars like... pushed it over the edge, you know. Yeah, and, um, and and like I said, like like it's it's a you know it's a small project, but it's it's like su- you know super important to me. Like I said, someone I really care about is is in the film, and um, yeah, I, I think just you know Andrew being um, you know a. A, a small beginning director, but having the integrity to want to, to compensate his cast and crew is like, you know, I, I really admire that. Yeah, and absolutely. So thank you for, thank you again for contributing. So thank you, Sean. Um, as far as what the next bonus episode is, there is a little debate. Um, I mean, we're talking about different things. Um, one thing I might do is with Robert Reinecke, I might talk about anthology horror films. Um, one thing with uh, Robert Reinecke, of course, from the Terrence Fisher and uh, Henry George Clouseau episodes. Um, I'm doing a I'm doing a bonus episode with Bill Ackerman uh, from the Nicholas Rogue and the Andre Tarkovsky um, episodes, and we might talk. I think what we're going to talk about is films. I'm going to go back and revisit films that I didn't like throughout the 
series of Directors Club. Really? And I'm going to see how I feel about them now. Um, just That should be interesting. Yeah, just like, you know, acclaimed films and stuff that I wasn't into and I wasn't on board with. Like War Horse? I'm not War Horse. <laughs> I'm going to, you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to watch a Hal fucking Hartley movie. <laughs> like, so that should be interesting. Jim donated. Um, and uh, I think we're going to be talking about like two of his favorite movies from childhood or whatever. So that's going to be weird because it's just going to be Jim like, I know, I know, but I like it. And I'm like, no, it's good. It's okay. It's, <laughs> it's going to be weird. But um, so anyway, uh, expect more of these. Um, and uh, you, know, you know, I donated $50. Did you? Yeah. Oh, do you want? Do you want? War horse, war horse, war horse. No. <laughs> Look, I will. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, if you if you want, I'll do a bonus episode where it's a where it's a commentary track for Warhorse, but I do it as the goose from Warhorse. <gasps> you know that you know that, char- really, that charismatic I, goose I from the beginning of Warhorse. Well, yes. I'm going to be the charismatic <laughs> goose from the beginning of Warhorse, but I'm going to talk in that way that directors talk when they're like that really sort of unaffected, very unenthusiastic kind uh-huh. of way that directors do on directors. I'm like, I am. Uh, hi, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm a charismatic goose, and uh, I'm, I'm the paramount pictures. <laughs> like, oh, this was very difficult to shoot. Yeah, I love that line. <laughs> like, Actually, don't don't do that. I, I I don't like animals in peril. I, I can't I can't sit through war horse. You can't sit through war horse. No. That's fine. <laughs> But thank you so much for being on this episode. I'm shaking your hand right now for the benefit of no one. <laughs> um, it made me feel important. Good, good. Um, thank you so much for being on. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. I had a great time as well. Uh, where can people find you? So I'm on Twitter at Tessa underscore Racked, R-A-C-K-E-D. Um, you can read my blog, Consistent Panda Bear Shape, which is a journal of fat characters in cinema, pandabearshape.wordpress.com. Yeah, and you were recently on uh, the website Bitch Flicks. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was very proud to... Uh, Bitch Flicks had, um, is, a, is a feminist film and TV website, um, and every month they do a theme week at the end of the month, and last month was... Uh, the theme was fat acceptance and fat phobia. So I wrote an article about um, an indie film that came out last year called The Foxy Merkins. Uh, you can find it on Netflix. Watch instantly. It's, it's really good. It's hilarious. Um, and I think it was really groundbreaking in terms of its uh, protagonist, who is a fat uh, gender non-conforming lesbian prostitute. So please watch Foxy Merkins on Netflix and please read Bitch Flicks because it's an amazing site to begin with. B-T-C-H-F-L-C-K-S.com uh, and please search for my article because I put a lot of work into it. Yeah. yeah. I Once again, like if you like shows like Louie or stuff like that, really check out the Foxy Merkins. It's low budget and you're like, oh, wait, wait what is this? But it is so funny. Yeah. It's it's one of the funniest movies I've seen in years. Um it's right up there with Alan Partridge as far as like just funniest movies that came out the past couple of years. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pastiche of uh basically my own private Idaho and and Midnight Cowboy uh with hilarious lesbians. Yeah. All right. Um and until then, I will talk to you folks next time on whatever the next bonus episode happens to be. It'll probably be about two or three weeks uh, before it comes out uh, as we need to put everything together and depending on how much prep I need to do it, it might be even longer than that but uh, 
Uh, I hope you enjoyed this, and uh, I'm glad that we were able. We were we were, we were having uh, dinner late earlier, and we were talking like oh, I don't know what we're gonna say about these movies. And it's been two hours. Yeah, so hopefully, some hopefully we had something to say. Um, all right. Well, thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, uh-huh.